Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Michael Muthukrishna. He is an assistant professor of economic psychology at the London School of Economics. His other affiliations include research associate of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, affiliate of the Developmental Economics Group at Stickard, and technical director of the database of religious history. His research focuses on the psychological and evolutionary processes that underlie culture and how culture is transmitted, maintained and modified. He is also particularly interested in the application of research in cultural evolution to public policy and we're going to touch a little bit on all of those topics today. So Dr. Mutukrishna, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let me ask you first, since you do work in economic psychology, what are perhaps some of the main aspects of psychology that economics is interested in? Uh, I guess you mean, I mean, assuming the discipline as a whole. Uh, so I think there's been this wide recognition that some of the assumptions that go into some economic models, even if they produce, uh, uh, you know, accurate outcomes or testable outcomes, uh, are, are a little bit unrealistic. And so, you know, the behavioral economics and later behavioral science revolution was really about picking and choosing pieces of psychology to, uh, to supplement the models or to, you know, to challenge them in some way. So a lot of it is to do with, you know, the, the strategies and biases that we have in our decision-making processes, uh, some of the social learning cues that we have. So that's, I guess, the discipline as a whole. I, you know, I have my own interest in, in the connections between those two. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, economics, it also has a lot to do with the evolutionary basis of human cooperation and particularly large-scale cooperation. So, I mean, I would like to ask you specifically about that, because I guess that the kind of cooperation that we see in today's human societies, particularly the more developed ones like the industrial Western societies and things like that, we really see a scale of cooperation that if we try to explain it only on the basis of uh, evolution or evolutionary processes, we really can't, right, through simply processes like kin selection, reciprocal altruism, and later I will also ask you about group selection, of course, but we have to add to the picture uh, uh, culture and cultural processes, correct? Yeah, I mean, you said a lot there. There's a, there's a few things to unpack. So I would say, you know, uh, economics isn't traditionally interested in kind of the evolution of cooperation, although they certainly are interested in cooperation as a whole and perhaps some of the mechanisms that uh, that sustain cooperation. Um, and you're you're totally right that you know the scale of uh, the scale at which we work with one another, uh, even with anonymous others, uh, is, is unprecedented uh, in the animal kingdom. I'd say, you know. Traditionally, the eusocial insects are what people point to—the ants and bees, um, and, 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 uh, and insects like that. But um, it's, it's unprecedented that, that you and I. So we could have had this interview in the same room, and that's that's crazy. It's crazy. Two chimps from two tribes could never do that. We'd have tried to kill each other. And even historically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If um, or, or it's unprecedented. If um, you know, a few centuries ago, this would have never happened. 
uh, it wouldn't have been a pleasant meeting. And, and even in many places around the world today, it doesn't work out so well. Uh, there are many parts of the world that two strangers uh, would not meet in a closed room. So, so that is a puzzle. Now, it, can that be explained by evolutionary forces? I mean, it depends what you mean by evolution. If you include cultural evolution in that, uh, I think you go a long way to explaining that. Um, one of the things that you know that I've been trying to understand is is what what corruption is all about. Um, and and the way I think about it is that you can think about corruption as one scale of cooperation undermining another. Uh, I'm happy to kind of expand on that if you'd like me to. Mm -hmm. Sure, but let me first ask you this. Uh, so uh, we as humans, of course, have uh, developed cultures that are far beyond what other species can do, even close primates. So uh, what would you say are perhaps some of the uh, cognitive uh, bases and also uh, how we evolved our sociality that really gives bases to the cultures that we are able to develop and the cultural processes that we have, particularly perhaps cumulative culture that it seems that we are the only species on the earth that has it. Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. So, you know, other animals seem to have some 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 traditions, for example, many chimp groups uh, will will transmit nutcracking techniques, or you know, some monkeys even hand holding or, or or whatever. You're right. Well, you have what 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 we in the jargon call cumulative culture, which is specifically de uh, defined as um, a level of of, uh, of of technology and know-how and beliefs and behaviors that are adaptive that not even the smartest among us could recreate. So in other words, you couldn't recreate the, the, the world we live in um, on your own, no matter how smart you are. Uh, and that's been true for a very long time. It's not some recent thing. It's not, you know, since the information age or something. Even as, as hunter-gatherers, the, um, the kinds of technology that, that we use to, uh, to march across the globe um, and live in every ecosystem, and we did that as hunter-gatherers, um, those technologies are sophisticated enough that not, no single individual could recreate them. Um, so we have this cumulative culture. Now the question is, why do we have that, or at least what psychology underlies that? Um, and you know, there's a there's a growing body of work that suggests that the reason that we have that is because we we copy in a particular way, we copy other people in a particular way that has led to um, effectively a second line of evolving inheritance, a cultural line or an informational line. So. Uh, for any evolutionary system to operate, it doesn't matter whether it's a genetic system or whether it's a genetic algorithm, um, it requires three ingredients. So there needs to be some amount of variation, so there has to be different things that you can select on. Um, there needs to be some amount of transmission, and that transmission shouldn't be uh, too lossy. So if the mutation rate was very high, then you know a genetic evolution wouldn't work very well. And it needs to be variation reducing in some way. And if you want it to be adaptive, it needs to be variation reducing in the selective way where you're selecting the adaptive traits. So we know the genes can do that. We know that um, uh, you know the, the genes that are most adaptive or, or, or animals that carry the most adaptive genes uh, will will outcompete animals that don't. You know, maybe they reproduce more, they survive longer, or, or whatever. Um, and culture seems to be the same thing. So the variation is easy. We do all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. I don't think you need too much of an explanation there. But the key is that we, we copy each other, and we copy each other um, without really understanding what's going on. 
So we overcopy what other people are doing. When a celebrity, um, you know, seems to prefer a certain brand of, of, of milk or prefers a certain brand of perfume, uh, we also want to prefer that brand. Now, that, that has nothing to do with the success of that celebrity, but we also prefer that. When we walk into a room and everybody's sitting down, we sit down too. We don't know why we're sitting down. We just, we just sit down. If people tell you to brush your teeth in the morning and also at night, you just do it. And you have some vague, you know, if you're asked, well, why do you do that? You have some vague explanation for it. So we copy without really understanding, but we do it selectively. So we're not copying just anyone we meet. Uh, we're copying people who are successful. We're copying people who have expertise. We copy people who other people are copying, what's called a prestige bias. And, and since we're doing all this selective copying, then as a whole, the population tends to have knowledge that's worth copying, that's worth learning. And, and so we, we, we tend to uh, learn from the majority as well. We learn from what, what most people are doing. So this gives us the three ingredients for culture to operate as an evolutionary system. And just like genetic evolution has led to this amazing array of, of life forms, uh, we have an amazing array of cultural practices, beliefs, and behaviors spanning the globe that, that are highly adapted to their local environment or highly adapted to um, you know, the historical circumstances that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is really interesting, and, and I mean, it's the case that uh, this is why we have a huge advantage when compared with other animals, because we not only receive from our parents, for example, the genetic material that contains uh, some information as to the environment we're going to interact with and we are prepared to deal with, but we also receive information from culture. Uh, that allows for us to better deal also with the kinds of evolutionary, evolutionarily relevant problems that we have to solve in order to survive and reproduce, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's a very, it's a very powerful idea that uh, actually, you know, the, the process by which um, our societies are getting more intelligent, the process by which they're acquiring innovations and technologies and um, you know, and practices or beliefs or whatever that, that work uh, is separate from what's going on at an individual level. So we can, we can be born into the world and, you know, we spend the first 18 to maybe 30 years these, these days catching up on the last several thousand years of human history. And we're able to catch up. We're able to cheat. You know, we're able to not have to reconstruct everything. And we do it by not really understanding what we're doing. We just copy what everyone else is doing and we do it selectively. And this selective high fidelity copying, um, this selective high fidelity aping, if you like, um, leads to a population level computation, if you, you know, it leads to this, this, this population level selection where there's this filtering process um, leading to, as a whole, all of us acquiring these things. So that's a, that's, a very, that's a very powerful idea. I think what's also important to understand is that what that also means is that when most animals encounter a new environment, they're forced to genetically adapt to those new circumstances. But when we marched across the globe as hunter-gatherers, we didn't change all that much physically. You know, you get things like skin color, for example, which are highly adapted to, to the amount of UV radiation to balance the vitamin D uh, synthesis in your skin versus not getting skin cancer. Um, but a lot of our changes were cultural. And so we, we, you know, we differentiated along these cultural lines, and it's that software, that cultural software that's running in our brains that affects most of our behavior. And 
it's not just norms and behaviors and beliefs. It's down to kind of raw perception. It's how you view the world, literally, in terms of things like uh, susceptibility to, to visual illusions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so could you tell us now about the cultural brain hypothesis? Because earlier sure. we talked about perhaps what are the sorts of uh, aspects of cognition that we had to evolve in order to really have culture and to have culture at a level that really far exceeds the one that we find in other species. But it seems that we also have... Uh, sort of gene culture co-evolutionary processes and that culture might also uh, be part of the environment and exert some environmental pressures that then select for uh, higher cognition let's say right yeah yeah so there's a couple of things that you said that were very interesting i mean the first is that you know a lot of um the genetic selection that, or the environment to which genes are, have been adapting for quite some time now, uh, has been a cultural environment. Um, you know, today your your success is, is largely based on your ability to navigate this cultural environment, your ability to read, uh, your ability to acquire knowledge, and then go out and get a job and earn money. You know, um, and and so a lot of it's been there. And you know, and there are some classic examples of this, like if your society. Um, herded cows. There was this wonderful source of calories in the milk of those cows. But every mammal on earth can, can only uh, process the lactase in that, uh, in that milk in their childhood. They can't do it in adulthood. And so there were two solutions. Some societies who, who herded cows developed a cultural solution. They, they developed yogurt and cheese, things that allowed them to unlock those calories, but also reduce the amounts of, uh, of lactose. Um, the other society do it genetically. So they didn't develop these cultural solutions. Literally, uh, the individuals who could process the lactose uh, had some advantage over the individuals who didn't, such that places in, in, in say, Western Europe, um, in the Nordic countries, most individuals can handle uh, lactose well into adulthood, um, whereas in other places, uh, it, it's somewhere in between, like South Asia, and in other places like East Asia, it, it's almost zero. So, okay, so that's just, you know, I just wanted to mention kind of cultural gene coevolution, but you asked me specifically about the cultural brain hypothesis. Right. So the cultural brain hypothesis is really an attempt to uh, draw together and formalize, and I mean kind of mathematically formalize, several theories uh, to try to explain various different features of, of humans, but also various different features that we see correlated across the animal kingdom. Uh, and so one of those is just, the difference, the difference in brain size that we see across the animal kingdom, right? So uh, humans, as you as you well know, have extraordinarily large brains, uh, and those brains have, have have grown in size over the last few million years. So tripled in the last few million years, and our brains today are about three times as large as a chimpanzee's, our nearest cousins, right? Um, and that's a puzzle, and it's a puzzle because brain tissue is actually incredibly energetically expensive. Um, to run a brain requires a lot of calories. And so actually, you might think you're better off with a bigger brain, but you're, you're better off with the smallest brain that you can get away with that allows you to solve the problems that you encounter in your environment. So why, why do we have these enormous brains is one puzzle. And, and other primates have various brains, you know, brain sizes that are quite small and brain sizes that, that are quite a bit larger, and then we are kind of at this extreme scale. Now, it, one of the first things that people notice, at least among primates, is that brain size seems to correlate with group size in primates. 
And, and that's kind of interesting. And so this led to what's been called the social brain hypothesis or the social intelligence hypothesis or the Machiavellian intelligence hypothesis. And the idea was that um, since there is this relationship between brain size and group size, perhaps brains have actually uh, been an adaptation. Larger brains are adapted to dealing with uh, the complexities of life in larger groups, keeping track of individuals, for example. Right? Uh, trying to outcompete other individuals. Um, and, and maybe there is some kind of exogenous factor, some outside factor that led to groups varying in size, such as uh, avoiding predators or something like that. So you avoid predators in larger groups, and now you live in this larger group, so now you need a bigger brain. So when they tested this hypothesis among uh, other taxa, other orders, um, they didn't find this relationship. So you know, it's found in, um, in, in, in primates, but you know, it's not found in birds, for example. But there are these other um, features of the social world that do seem to correlate. So things like pair bonding in birds uh, or amount of time spent with others. So these, you know, these proxies of the social world. And so the social brain hypothesis kind of morphed into this broader thing. But those are, that's not the only um, correlation that we find. We also find a correlation between brain size and the length of your juvenile period. So, you know, how long you take to develop seems to be correlated with brain size. Um, and, and for us, we have uh, what's called what, what, what we call an adolescent period. So uh, I don't know if you've got kids, Ricardo. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> no. but, but, you know, so you don't have children, but you're, uh, you were able to reproduce many, 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 many years ago, presumably. I don't want to judge your age, but, you know, quite some time ago, at least you were able to reproduce from your early teens, let's say. Uh, but the, the length of time between when you're able to reproduce and when you actually do reproduce is quite is quite long and has been extending you know it's been extending and extending so that's that's another kind of uh, puzzle um, and then there's other things so bigger brains tend to socially learn more uh, so they tend to rely more on information from others and not and not just so the cultural brain hypothesis was really this attempt to bring this together and, and the basic the basic idea is this uh, bigger brains are not just for social living bigger brains are for what you think they're for they're for storing and managing information for organizing more information. Larger brains, on average, can store and manage more information. Okay? And so if you assume this, and then you assume that bigger brains are more costly than smaller brains because they're energetically expensive, um, but, you, but you assume that having more information can actually help you survive in the world, then you can, you can start to map out um, different ways of acquiring this information and, and allow these things to evolve. You can, you can allow the reliance on social learning to evolve. You can allow the ability to select from different individuals to learn to evolve. And, 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 and the story goes that um, the reason, so there's, in, our, in the cultural brain hypothesis, there's kind of two regimes that emerge. There's two pathways to a bigger brain. One pathway is by asocial learning. You just have a bigger brain, you trial and error learn, on your own, and you're, you're better able to do that because you're very intelligent. And among the animals that do that, and, and right now we're trying to test some of those taxa that more, rely more on this asocial learning, um, you don't expect to see actually a relationship between brain size and group size. You wouldn't expect to see that. But the other regime is, is to rely on the information from others, to be like the kid in the class who cheats. So rather than study for the exam by yourself, you just walk in and see what other people are doing and just copy them, right? And so uh, this leads to this other regime where um, the, the more you rely on social learning, it means that having larger groups benefits you 
because it, it, a it can maintain you can you can learn more things and that group can then maintain higher levels of knowledge which allow more of those individuals to survive and so that's why you see this the relationship between uh, social learning sorry between brain size and group size it's this indirect relationship because of how you learn and then you get other uh, adaptations so you need longer to learn this stuff because there's more of it to learn and so you get an extension of the juvenile period which explains why at least among these animals uh, so we, our prediction, and this is an interesting prediction which hasn't been tested yet, is that brain size should predict an extension of the juvenile period. So, you know, we know from, uh, so Barbara Finlay has this, uh, Barbara Finlay has this work uh, where she shows that these things normally with evolution go in lockstep, so you don't need special selection. If you ramp up brain size, you also ramp up things like uh, various parts of the juvenile period. So the idea is that beyond that, you'd extend, you see an extension of the juvenile period beyond where you'd expect it to be among social learning animals. And you see a contraction of the juvenile period among asocial learning animals. Because among asocial learning animals, you just want to get that juvenile period out of the way as soon as possible and then spend your time exploiting. Whereas among social learning animals, there's more stuff to learn. And so you can, you can, you can, it's valuable to spend more time learning before you go out and exploit. So that's why you see that relationship. And but we are we are at extreme on that, what we call the cumulative cultural brain hypothesis. Which is that we went we had this kind of autocatalytic relationship where our brains were growing, our group sizes were growing, our adaptive knowledge was growing, our reliance on social learning was growing, our ability to select who to learn from was all kind of ratcheting upward, right? Till it reached a point where we couldn't birth these giant brains of ours. They were so difficult that, that childbirth became a, a dangerous activity. And actually, if you look in the medical literature, you'll find that birth interventions, emergency, things, emergency birth interventions like cesareans and, um, and, and forceps are not predicted by body size. They're predicted by head size, as you would expect if, if you buy this theory. Um, and so this has been ratcheting upward to the point where now we have trouble giving birth to these large brains. And, you know, things like cesareans, variants maybe remove some of that selection pressure, introducing other problems like transmission of microbiome. Um, but uh, we had to come up with new solutions to deal with this ever-growing amount of information. Mm-hmm. So we, we began to specialize in information. So you do half of it, I'll do the other half, perhaps between men and women first. Um, you know, and then, then you know, increasing and increasing specialization. We, um, we, we increased our ability to transmit information so perhaps initially it was things like gaze following, uh, then maybe some theory of mind representing this onslaught of information that I'm giving you, trying to represent that in your brain. Um, we, we, you know, uh, as, as, the, as the toolkit grew, we, we developed uh, some amount of teaching. We slowed down to, to teach this information to other people. And, uh, you know, as, as things really ramped up in, let say, the Industrial Revolution, we even made it compulsory and we made it formalized. We said, look, we can't have this kind of situation where kids are just watching what the adult is doing and trying to learn, as you, as you find in many small-scale societies. We need to do this in an efficient way. So you're going to sit down and we're going to start from scratch. Here are your numbers. Here are your phonics. Here's your letters. Now you're going to learn to read. Reading opens up a new space. So language opens up a space. The fact that I can speak to you and not gesture, I can, I can increase the, the, the rate of information transmission and the fidelity of it. But then writing allows you to do that too, to store this. And you can watch videos like your videos to transmit that knowledge ever more greatly. This all enables things to grow. Our population sizes grew, which gave us access to more models. Our population sizes became increasingly interconnected, which gave us access to more models, which again ramped up this. And so now we're hitting this new situation where it's just taking a heck of a long time to learn all of the stuff that you need to survive. So it used to be that 
you could get away with uh, learning a little bit from you know from your parents and uncles and aunts, and then you go out and exploit to become a hunter or whatever, and you, then you refine your skill. Uh, in, in our society, it used to be that a high school degree was enough. Then you needed an undergraduate degree, then a master's degree. Then you needed a master's degree plus an internship. Then it was a master's degree plus an unpaid internship. And all of this delays our ability to buy that house and to, and to procreate. So our juvenile period has been extended and extended and extended. We call them man-children or kid-alts, right? Uh, this, this extension. And now we're hitting up against a new biological limit. So the first biological limit was an ability to birth that giant brain. The new biological limit is an, a, a woman's ability to reproduce at an older age. And there's some evidence for selection for that. Um, and so this is what the cultural brain hypothesis is, is trying to capture. There's more, there's more technicality and, and nuance that I could give you. Uh, but that's the cultural brain hypothesis and the cumulative cultural brain hypothesis in a nutshell. Okay, great. So let me ask you now this, because I mean, when we talk about human societies and human culture, there's always this interplay between sort of individual level psychology and group level or collective level phenomenon or, pro or processes. And perhaps there are researchers and disciplines that are more interested in the individual and others in the collective. So what would you say is perhaps the best way for us to talk about the relationship between individual level psychology and group level phenomena, let's say. Yeah, so you know, the thing about that, that increased amount of specialization is that you get these kind of silos that emerge. Like you learn one thing, you don't have time to learn everything or become an expert in everything. Um, and you know, we call this kind of a collective brain where each of us has kind of got a piece. So if you imagine that you've got 10 brain units, um, you were able to spread those 10 brain units at a level of, let's say there are 10 things you have to do in life to survive. You spread those 10 brain units and you get to one level of skill, right? So you got to make food, you got to process your food, you need to, um, uh, you need to make clothing, you need to make your house, you need all these things. And when you specialize, maybe you can spend, do only half of that on your own. So now you can get to two brain units and someone else gets the two brain units on the other half. And you increasingly specialize, you can get to higher and higher levels of cultural complexity, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, so this creates this kind of division. And, you know, as you said, psychologists are doing one thing, maybe economists are doing something else, and, you know, uh, sociologists are doing something else, and so on. And it seems like, why should I be interested in, you know, in, in that other sphere? Um, but the thing is that if you take seriously this idea that we are a product of two lines of inheritance, what we call dual inheritance theory, mm -hmm. then you cannot really understand our psychology by only looking at an individual level. Because the, to understand the software that's governing our psychology is to understand how that, psych, that software is written. And that software is written by these population-level processes. And so it, it necessarily requires you to kind of think at these two levels if you want to understand the origins. And you want to be able to predict beyond just what's going on in one society. You want to be able to predict why things are different across different societies. Now you need to, you to start to think about what's going on at the population level. These filtering processes, the, you know, what, 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 what my collaborator, uh, collaborator like Joe Henrik and I call the collective brain. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so um, the approach that I, I prefer to take is, that, is what I would call a, a non-disciplinary approach or an undisciplined approach. Uh, I'm interested in a puzzle. I'm interested in, um, in human psychology. I'm interested in how that plays out uh, for the kind of world that we live in today and how we can maybe improve the way the world works today. But in order to do that, I need to bring whatever tools I require 
to the table. It doesn't matter where they're from and what level they're operating at. And the thing is, I, I don't believe you can understand human psychology without taking into consideration this population level about where that information is coming from. So if some societies have norms about um, how much you should share or, or what fairness levels are, where are they acquiring that from? And we might say, okay, well, they're acquiring it selectively from their parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, you know, the older members of their society, and to some degree via their peers as well. Uh, okay, but why, do the, why does the society practice that? Why does this society believe that fairness is 50-50 and this other society accepts fairness is, is based on a hierarchy or it is whatever you get? Uh, in some societies, why are they susceptible to the mule liar illusion, you know, specific visual illusion? And in another society, they're not. And so if you want to understand human psychology and you want to build a theory of human behavior and a general theory of human behavior, you need to work at these multiple levels. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I imagine that as we go back in time, uh, at least from the point that we start having a culture and cultural processes operating, that uh, to know where a particular cognitive mechanism that we have operating in our mind uh, comes from, uh, I mean, it, it must be sort of a chicken and egg problem, that, that is to know if it comes from certain uh, purely biological processes that really created an adaptation uh, to deal with a certain kind of problem, or if it was some sort of uh, cultural process or, or cultural content that we created that really became part of the environment and created a new selective pressure that then led us to uh, develop also an adaptation, but that came from sort of a cultural process, a cultural evolutionary process, right? Yeah, I mean, these are excellent questions, Ricardo. Um, so the, the thing is, like, I, I think it's a mistake to try to differentiate, to try to cleanly separate these things. You can't. They they co-evolve uh, with one another, and they. So take take something like. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Take language. Okay, uh, is language a genetic adaptation? No doubt. We have things in our brains that allow us to do that. Okay, but. It requires input that's cultural. It is expecting input, and it doesn't work if you don't get that input within your sensitive period, for example. And so, you know, these things go hand in hand. Now, how did that evolve? Uh, I think a, a good explanation is some kind of Baldwinian process. So the, the idea there is that if you, so initially, there might have been some kind of proto-language. So if we became upright, maybe it freed our hands, and freeing our hands means gestures, right? And so we might be able to coordinate on certain gestures. This one is danger, you know, this one is high, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and it requires you to learn those gestures. But if those gestures are valuable enough, then genes that can allow you to learn those gestures faster might be selected, right? And so then you can do more gestures because kids are, or you know, new newcomers are picking it up faster. So you can do new gestures. And so if you do new gestures, then those gestures can become more complicated. And eventually, you know, maybe with the right mutation, you can start to use utterances or maybe initially with some grunting with certain things. And so you get this kind of feedback loop between the two, right? And so then when you look at the end product, which is the kind of language we're engaging in now, it can be hard to reverse engineer exactly, you know, how that took place. But I think the idea that is it genes or is it culture is, is mistaken. I don't think you can separate that. Or, you know, another example is to go back to the cultural brain hypothesis is that we, we have brains that require cooked food in order to operate. You know, our guts are too short to, to maintain raw food. 
but we don't have genes for 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 making fire and we don't have genes for an ability to cook you know the joke i make is ask any college student like it's not an innate ability in, in, in you know in how to cook and yet we require it to survive which means we were born into a world with no genetic adaptation so it was we were born into a world comfortable that we would be provisioned with food as as youngsters what i didn't say is you know the other solution to our to our bigger brains was to just give birth earlier and give birth more prematurely which then creates all kinds of things about uh, having to deal with these these young children who require a lot of provisioning and much of our society is driven around how to handle these children right so the fact that um you know you, I, I don't want to get into it this it's complicated but even some of the male female divisions uh and different solutions to that so the na for example it's getting complicated i, I don't want to get into that um th these are all adaptations to this particular thing that took place because of the cultural input that led to requirements for larger and larger brains which led to premature infants and now we have to have cultural solutions to do this so they, these things are intrinsically tied to one another yeah um but that said, and, and, and sorry, the other thing is that um, the more things become commonplace, the more things become shared across the globe, the more we assume that this is a human universal, right? Um, one day, if we had, you know, we recently had a paper called The Problem in Theory, and the example we use there is that if you came as this, you know, psychologist from Venus to match the anthropologist from Mars, and you came to the Earth, um, and you knew nothing about the history of the human race, you might assume that we have some adaptations for reading, right? Uh, and it's because, you know, it, it spreads really quickly across, you know, all, all over the world. Uh, but of course, we know that we didn't, we didn't always read. And it's the same thing. You know, we assume that we have adaptations for numeracy because most people have numeracy, but that might be culturally acquired, you know? We assume we have adaptations for uh, logical thinking or reasoning, but that might be culturally acquired, right? And so you have really, you, in many ways, we require history. So I, I, one of the reasons I work on the database of religious history is that we require these large databases of history because history is a little bit like the, it's the cultural fossil record. You see, like in the same way that evolution, is, genetic evolution is um, a natural selection, uh, we can look for evidence in the, in the, in the, in the paleo, or the, the, the fossil record. Um, looking through history gives us a cultural fossil record to try to understand the changes that have taken place. And, and, and also, we, you know, the same way that biologists might, uh, or biologists focused on physiology might look across the globe at the diversity of life across the globe to understand that we look across cultures, both, both extant, like the ones that are here now, as well as cultures that have long gone the, the record that they've left behind to try to understand this. But the thing is that because many of these features, like the ability to reason, the ability to handle hypotheticals, numeracy, the way we carve up the color spectrum, because these are so ingrained in us, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to convince people that they're not human universals. You know, the assumption is this is the norm, and then anyone who, or anything that isn't that is some deficit. But, you know, I, I have two children, and I'm constantly fascinated by the things that I just take for granted. I'm like, oh, you don't know that yet. You haven't acquired that, that way of thinking yet. Your mind is like, you know, completely uh, astray. It's amazing to watch because that's that's the only kind of snippet of of, of uh, or, or snapshot or insight we might have into into the, what what the world was like. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I mean, when it comes to uh, the cultural selective process, let's say, and what 
is successful or not at the cultural level, we really have to understand uh, the parts of our innate cognition that really operate as selective processes. That is, we have certain biases, for example, that predispose us to remember more easily certain right. types of information. And, right. and, and that would be an example of uh, an innate psychological process that operates as a selective process at sure. the level of culture and that really allows for us to better understand why, for example, certain ideas are, are successful and others are, aren't, right? Yes and no, right? So, uh, look, I agree with you that there are some reliably developing features of our species that lend themselves to being a cultural species, a cumulative cultural species, right? Mm -hmm. Children at a very young age are socially engaged with others. They pay attention to what adults and, and older siblings, <coughs> excuse me, and older individuals are doing. We're very social, right? And we do tend to copy, uh, overcopy without understanding. You know, there's a classy experiment by Horner and Whiten, you know, where they give they give the kids and the chimps this kind of box. Do, do you know this experiment? Do you want me to explain right. it to your, your listeners? Uh, perhaps it's better for you to explain it because I know about it, but sure, maybe yeah. many so, people in my audience do not. So. Yeah, so, so here, you know, there's a nice experiment by, uh, by uh, Victoria Horner and Andy Whiten where... Um, they give chimps and kids this box. It's got a hole in the top and a hole on the side. And uh, inside is a uh, reward for the chimps, if I recall, it was a piece of fruit. And uh, for the children, I think it was a sticker. And uh, the experimenter kind of pokes a hole, you know, pokes a stick through the hole at the top and pokes a, a stick through the hole at the side and uh, retrieves the reward. So they hand it to the chimp. The chimp pokes a hole through the top, pokes a hole through the side, retrieves the reward. Hands it to the, to the child, to the human child. The child pokes a hole through the top. Post out the side retrieves its reward. Then, in the key variation in that experiment, um, they they uh, made the box transparent. So previously the box was opaque; you couldn't see what was going on. Now it's transparent, and you can see that that first action doesn't do anything, like poking a hole through the top. It's actually hitting a floor or a ceiling, depending on how you want to think about it. It's only the second action that retrieves it. But again, the experimenter pokes her hole through the top, pokes her hole through the side, hands it to the chimp. Chimps are smart, you know. They forget that first action. I know what's going on. They just do the, the second action you know, to retrieve it from the, the thing. But when they, when the experimenter pokes their hole through the top, pokes it through the side, and hands it to the child, what does the child do? They have no reason to, they don't want to, it's not that they don't want to understand, but they, they, they are willing to do things without fully understanding them. They trust that the adult must have a reason for this. And so they poke their hole through the top and poke their hole through the side. So ch children do that, and that seems to be kind of a reliable tendency. You know, many of your behaviors are just like that. When you when you restarted Skype before this meeting, you don't know how Skype works and the voice and the bandwidth. You don't know any of that. You just know if I restart it, it's gonna work. You know, uh, maybe you discovered that through trial and error. Maybe you discovered it by you know reading online. You know, when you learn to cook. You don't understand the biology or chemistry of the processes, right? You just add the salt to the beginning or the end because your father or your mother did that. You know, you cut the meat up in a certain way. You cut the vegetables up. You add it to this point. It's, it's just following a recipe. And so we have this tendency to follow these recipes. That is true, okay? But the specific biases that we use, I think it's still an unresolved question, the degree to which they are innate in some way or they're reliably developing because they're a function of the culture. You know, the culture supports things like going to school and the way you learn in school that we kind of accept. Look, you know, it, it's probably not innate 
uh, that we want to go to school. I mean, we have to force kids many times. Uh, it's not innate, maybe, to pay attention to the teacher. Maybe it's building on things, right? That we accept. But I think other things as well, like um, how do we know what a celebrity is? You know, how do we know um, the, that a suit, like a suit means success? You know, that's not, that cannot be innate, right? It's, a, it's too new. And so uh, where did we learn that? So there's some amount of cultural learning for learning. And this is something we're beginning to explore in, in, in my lab at the moment. Um, there's, there's some cultural learning on learning. Um, you know, folks like Celia Hayes have been trying to push this, this, this mission, uh, this vision for a while. Um, but, but I guess my, my message here is that I think it is a mistake for your question to be what is genetic and what is cultural. Mm -hmm. That's a mistake because you cannot disentangle those things in any sensible way. Um, I think the question is, how does this operate? Mm -hmm. How how does what are the the, the the least number of kind of assumptions or the least basic primitives that are required to get the system off the ground? And then how is it changed over time? And there's going to be a genetic component to it. There's going to be a cultural component to it. And for all we know, there's going to be other lines of inheritance, perhaps epigenetic, perhaps microbiome, perhaps environmental, you know, triggered by certain kinds of environments. All kinds of other things may also be, be part of this. And it, the question shouldn't be genes versus culture. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand. And thank you, by the way, for describing that kind of experiment of comparative psychology, right, where people yeah. com compare other primates, particularly with children uh, at different stages of cognitive development, because I really think that those sorts of experiments yeah. allow for us to extract a lot of information, particularly uh, phylogenetic information or something like right, that right, about right, right, right. our evolution and things like that. So uh, yeah. let me just ask you now, because whenever I talk with someone who does work in cultural evolution, I always have to ask about this. That is, what is your position when it comes to group selection? Because, because I guess that most people, at least the ones that I've been talking to, agree generally that group selection operates at the cultural level. But when it comes to the genetic level, I mean, it's still a very contentious topic. And there are people like David Sloan Wilson and more recently Edward O. Wilson who embrace group selection operating at the genetic level. But it seems to me that at least most biologists do not accept it, or at least it's not a mainstream uh, idea. Let's say. I, I, you know, I think that the debate has moved a little bit in recent times to, you know, what is, what is the most, so there's this kind of, there's a mathematical equivalence between um, representing the forces of evolution um, in this group selective way as, you know, kind of between, uh, partitioning the variance between, um, between groups, or kind of at this individual level partitioning the variance there. And I think the debate has mostly moved on my reading to, um, which of these is more useful to do this, uh, to, to, to understand the, the phenomenon at hand? And, and part of this usefulness, at least implicitly, is um, which of these is closer to the causal story? Where is the selection taking place? Is it actually taking place at this kind of group level? Is it actually taking place at this kind of um, this more individual level? Where is that taking place? How do I draw out this, this kind of causal story? Um, so I think I think the cultural group selection thing is less controversial, though also I I, I think widely misunderstood. Um, 
you know, I don't think people understand what a culture. So I've been, I've been, you know, uh, I've recently been encouraging people to to write cultural group selection with a dash between them. So it's cultural dash group selection, mm-hmm. because I think that when people hear it, they hear cultural group selection. You know, this yeah. cultural type of group selection. When in reality, what it is is selection on cultural groups. So yeah. it's cultural group selection. You know. Uh, and I mean, it seems like a, a minor point, but I think it leads to a lot of misunderstanding because then you have to ask, well, what is a cultural group? And in the strictest anthropological definition of it, it's the ethno-linguistic group. Um, uh, you know, it's the speaking the same language, belonging to the same culture. But in reality, especially in a more interconnected world, um, cultural groups are measured by the traits. And you, as an individual, are a carrier of these traits. And those traits are... Um, you belong to cultural groups that are embedded and overlapping, right? You are Portuguese, um, but you are also from this, this particular region of Portugal, right? right? And you are also European, right? And, 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 and those have different trait distributions associated with them that we can begin to measure in contrast with other trait distributions. And the success of these different, you know, it, it, you, people, I think what people find less controversial is companies. People freely aggregate in companies. Companies have some kind of corporate culture, and um, those companies fall and die. But actually, what we care about is the corporate culture. So when Google starts giving away free food and you know acting on campuses, we don't know that that's successful necessarily, but everybody starts to copy it. And so the cultural group that is that kind of Silicon Valley behavior spread. Okay, that's so the cultural group is, is defined by the traits. And what you want to track are the traits. And there's an analogy there with, uh, with kind of a genes eye view. But anyway, I don't want to get into that too much. What's going on with genes? So I think people agree that in kind of a causal sense for it, genetic group selection is, is possible. And uh, Davis L. Wilson has, has pointed to many of the examples of where it may act- have actually played out because of things like uh, spatial separation or, or whatever. But the concern has always been um, in order to be able to partition the variance between groups, you need to be able to make, it needs to make sense. There needs to be variance between those groups. And you need to be able to maintain that variance between groups long enough for selection to operate. Yeah? Um, for cultural, for, for, um, cultural groups, countries, uh, you know, with, with sets of laws that, that they, that, that move around, um, or groups of countries that share certain types of laws, uh, companies, people are more comfortable that the group norms are maintained. And, and even without that, as long as we have some kind of punishment for norm violators, we're happy that that gets maintained. How does it happen in the genetic case? Less clear. Uh, you know, when two countries go to war with one another, you can wipe out or really destroy part of some cultural trait, mm-hmm. right? But war, unfortunately, uh, spreads genes too, right? There's a lot of gene flow when, when, when two countries go to war with one another. I don't know if that answers your question. I, I'm, I'm more framing the debate. It's not like, so what I would say is, Genetic group selection is, 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 is possible and probably has played out in some circumstances. It's not something I work on, and so I don't want to kind of weigh in on all of that. Uh, but for humans, cultural group selection, I think, has been a major force uh, uh, in, 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 if people think about it, quite uncontroversial ways. Uh, democracy has spread. Uh, monogamy has spread. Religions have spread. Uh, and those cultural groups, as, as defined by the cultural trait group to which they belong, um, have been very successful relative to others that are less successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I would like now to ask you about politics and particularly about political corruption. But just before we dive into that, uh, could you tell us what are 
social institutions in human societies and what is perhaps the function that they have? Social institutions? Mm -hmm. Did you mean kind of like, uh, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but you know, so there are, there are differences kind of between informal institutions and formal institutions. Uh, so informal institutions like uh, marriage practices, right? So there may be some traditions that you engage in when you get married to someone, and then there are certain norms that govern how you treat your, your in-laws, for example. Um, formal institutions are, you know, the, the legal code of law um, uh, that, that, uh, that, that for marriage, for example, like writing down that certificate. Um, so, I mean, these, you know, these uh, the way I think about it is that you can think of formal institutions and, and laws and, and codes as kind of hardened norms. So, you know, they serve a couple of functions. One is that they, um, they, as the norm eventually, you know, uh, reaches close to fixation, so most people have possessed the norm, you can use it to signal what, what the agreement is. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're making it concrete. You write down, uh, now gay marriage is legal, right? Uh, there may be some dissent, but now we can kind of coordinate on this new norm. Everyone can, you know, this is the law, right? And and it may be supported by these other invisible cultural pillars, like rule of law. Do we agree that, the, you know, in the, in, the, in the rule of law? It supports this and co-evolved with it. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the formal institution versus informal institution, but I think of them as more along a spectrum. You've kind of got preferences, you know, you, you've got opinions and preferences, and you've got kind of norms, then you've got kind of these hardened norms in these informal institutions that you might ask an elder about how should we baptize our child or something, and then you get these, well, baptism is not a good example because in many places it is formalized, uh, and then you get these more formal things which are written down, codified, they're in constitutions, they're in legal codes. Um, and it's fascinating to think about how, you know, how what supports what, you know, how are these formal institutions supported? Uh, we're seeing some fascinating things going on in the United States at the moment with that. Um, so, right, and so you wanted to talk about uh, corruption as, as these things operate? Or? Uh, per perhaps there's a term that is more precise about what I wanted to talk about, that is pro-social institutions. Mm. I, I don't know if that helps. or. Sure, yeah, so um, this goes back to kind of the cultural group selection idea, and that is that um, Take religion, take religion as a, as a pro-social institution. Um, it is not an accident is that the, the large world religions today um, have some practices in common with one another. Uh, they, many of them tend to be pro-fertility, have large families. They tend to say, be nice to at least in-group members, if not out-group members, uh, as a way to kind of draw people in. Um, you know, some kind of spreading the message explicitly in the way the missionaries go out and spread it or implicitly you know invite your friends and you know let them be exposed to it something like that um, so they have these features and the reason that they have these features is because the religions that didn't are no longer here they were less they didn't spread right the the, the, the classic example of this is take the mormons right the mormons went from a very small group of people to via things like polygamy and, and very high birth rates to a, a serious large religion in the United States where we even have the presidential candidate, right? Um, and then you get groups like the Shakers. Uh, do you have any Shaker friends? No, I don't think so. Do you have any Quaker friends? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so Qua Quakers are, you know, at least you know, in the U.S., they're, they're not uncommon, put it that way. Uh, Shakers were a particular offshoot of the, 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 the Quakers. Uh, 
So Quakers have birth rates at about the same rate as the U.S. population, and they grow at about the same pace or shrink at about the same pace. Shakers uh, believed in complete celibacy. Mm -hmm. So not celibacy for a priestly class, celibacy for everybody. They only grow via adoption and conversion. There are effectively no Shakers left. It is not a successful strategy. So, so, you know, I think this is why people say, oh, all religions say the same thing. Kind of, kind of. I mean, many religions have common features that any religion that is, that is a major world religion today has features that have enabled that religion and the group to succeed and survive, right? So, but, of course, there are differences at the margins. You know, how, what is your attitude toward the division between men and women? What is your attitude toward authority? How do you change your, your, your practices? How do you update if you do update at all? And these things are different. And I think that's where some of these, these culture wars are taking place at those, those, those kind of uh, cleavages. So, you know, some one group wants to say, look, all religions are the same. Eh, kind of true. Also kind of not true. And the other group say, no, but of course they're very different. Eh, kind of true, kind of not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but I would say the pro-sociality is, is at a kind of a few steps back from what I just said. And that is that being pro-social within your in-group and telling people to be pro-social to other members of the, the whatever group identity we've decided on helps that group identity to survive. That is a cultural group in the sense of a cultural trait that is likely to grow. So mm-hmm. cultural group selection is, a, is, is made up of really two pieces, our norm psychology, our ability to identify what traits we should be internalizing and punishing, and our ethnic psychology, so our ability to identify what groups we belong to and what the borders of those groups are. Okay, so let's move on to the last topic of our conversation today, that is political corruption. Could you first give us a definition of corruption? Sure. So, um, you know, corruption is is often the the violation of the explicit rules. I don't actually, you know, so my view is it's the violation of the explicit rules and a bypassing of those rules that, um, that benefit a a smaller group of individuals rather than the, you know, the whole group of individuals to which the rule was designed to, to do. So if you offer someone a bribe, it benefits you and the bribe, and the bribe uh, taker, uh, but it undermines the system and it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, it um, harms the people who are not able to pay that bribe, for example, right? Or the people who are doing a legitimate job are now making less money than the bribe taker. If you uh, give a job to your friend instead of the best candidate, uh, that benefits you and your friends because now the way to get a job is to have access to a friendship group and it harms the people who don't have those kinds of networks. That's what corruption is. Um, so the, here's the thing. We have been, there's a, there's a body of literature on corruption mm-hmm. that has been focusing on how do we reduce this kind of behavior. And it often treats corruption as this aberration. So there's the well-functioning institution which enables high levels of cooperation. We pay our taxes. We have a well-functioning judiciary, a well-functioning you know, government. We have police force uh, that, that maintains the, those laws and, and so on. That's the, that's, that's the norm. And then you get these places that uh, you know, are, are undermined by this kind of bribe-taking and cronyism and nepotism, for example. Mm-hmm. So the but here's the other thing on the other side you've got all of this work that, that is focused on cooperation more generally and actually even the institutional work has been on cooperation and so the, having that institution this leviathan who extracts taxes and uses it to punish norm violators to, to punish free riders law violators I should have said um, that uh, when it works is it, it, great you know but it's a, it's a way to sustain cooperation but there are other ways so we know that. Um, 
we know why why most animals, like all, all animals on Earth, um, will favor their kin. They love. For us, we say we love our families because genes that can identify and favor copies of themselves will spread at the expense of genes that that don't do that. Yeah. Um, and so, so that explains kind of cooperation at the level of family. So why you will go out of your way for people who share your genes, why you'll help your brother, you'll help your sister, right? To the point where other institutions try to co-opt that kind of language, you know, and say my brother in, in arms or, or, or whatever, right? You know, uh, religious groups will say brothers and sisters, uh, you know, they'll refer to it, hi sister, hi brother, and so on, yeah? Mm-hmm. So that gets you so far. Then you got to get this... Um, the next level is kind of direct reciprocity as a mechanism for sustaining cooperation or peer punishment. So that allows us to work with people who we regularly interact with. I regularly interact with the members of my department, and we, we, we get on well because of this kind of reciprocity. You do this work, I do that work. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Or in a small-scale society, if you screw me over, I'm going to come find you, right? If you steal my crops, I'm going to come find you, you know, and I'm going to come get you yourself because I know who you are. That's the key to it. So that gets to the point of people you know. But you want to go further, um, you know, to people you, you know of. Uh, and this is indirect reciprocity or reputation. So I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am, maybe. But I know all of you. And, what I, and, and I know the people you run with. So I'm just going to tell people that you screwed me over. And other people won't cooperate with you. And so your, your, your payoffs are lower. So that gets you to the point where as long as you can track reputations, it works. But that's still a far cry from large, anonymous, working with people, like going to a grocery store, buying things, going to the coffee shop, buying things, you know, meeting up with teachers you've never met before. And those work because our institutions work. But here's the thing. So I would argue that corruption is, is not a puzzle. What corruption is, is one scale of cooperation undermining those higher scales. So when, when you know, uh, a president gives a contract to a, to a, to a, a child, for example, a brother, a brother, or something like that. Uh, we call that nepotism, but really, it's inclusive fitness or kin selection undermining the institution. Mm-hmm. If you give a job to um, someone you know or someone you know of, that's cronyism. But it's also just direct reciprocity or indirect reciprocity undermining our meritocracy, our meritocratic institutions, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it this way, it gives you kind of a way to do this. And we have, you know, we have experimental work that's tapped into this, and we have some uh, upcoming work that's kind of tapping into how these scales of cooperation undermine one another. And the puzzle is how on earth did some places in the world manage to suppress those lower order scales of cooperation to the point where you could get the institutions to be well-functioning? And there are a few answers. The banning of cousin marriage in Europe seems to have paid, played a part. Normally, kin groups are able to cooperate to only to some degree because as you marry away, the degree of relatedness drops away, right? right? Unless you start to marry your cousins. If you marry your cousins, then your uncle is also related to you by this and your brother, you know, your cousin is related to blah, blah, blah. So you get these tighter connections and that lets you really ramp up into full-on tribes of related individuals, right? Combined with some amount of norms, you can really cooperate to the point where you can undermine a state. So banning cousin marriage in Europe may have been, and there's, there's now causal evidence that it may have been pivotal to, to wiping out kin cooperation as a major force and making the cooperation of families, just really the nuclear family and, and maybe the slightly extended family, grandparents, uncles, and aunts, but not more than that. And that sets the stage for another force to come in, like an institutional, like a, a, the Leviathan, the government. But there's other, you know, there's other ways of looking at conflicts of interest to do with these lines of direct reciprocity or indirect reciprocity that can harm things. So, uh, you know, um, 
folks like Cameron Murray, you know, have been looking at um, uh, co- uh, corruption in, in Australia. You know, Australia is fabled as the land of mates, and it's not surprising that there the major issue is not nepotism, it's cronyism. You know, it's people fa- giving favors to their mates. So if you track, and they have done this, you know, track who's on the board with who. You know, who's, where, is, where are the lines of reputation and where are the lines of interaction? Uh, then you um, you can see why those are undermining the institutions in Australia. And Australians should be very worried about that. You won't see the results in a few, till a few decades. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that piece of work that you referred about banning uh, marriage between cousins, that, that's the one that uh, Joe Henrik also participated in, in terms of uh, explaining perhaps the role that the Catholic Church played in Europe, right? In, the, in terms of the um, the social social institution, I'm not sure if it was in terms of developing social institutions or perhaps in terms of influencing how society was structured toward what we now know uh, as weird societies. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the idea has been floating around for uh, for a while. Um, you know, there's this anthropologist, Goody, I think, who proposed it, and Francis Fukuyama talks about it in, in his book. Um, and, you know, the, as, as you would expect, in, if you read my work on, uh, on the collective brain, Jonathan Schultz and uh, Duman Rudd and, um, you know, their, their, um, uh, their, their, their collaborators, uh, both kind of just showed this at the same time in two working papers. And Joe, in the meantime, I know, had been working on this for a long time, and he's been really ramping this thing up and understanding how this key moment, this, this key uh, shift in Europe, may have laid the foundations for many aspects of our society and many aspects of our psychology. So we should all be very excited about his upcoming book. Yeah, yeah right, right. I'm really yeah. expecting it. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, so do we already know anything about what might be some of the main factors that play a role uh, in terms of the ways a society gets structured that perhaps promote uh, political corruption and also render people more acceptable or more tolerant toward political corruption? Yeah, so uh, a little bit. So... um you know, we can we can begin to understand so kin large kin networks and you know so it's funny it's a funny thing. Like so we, we think of like um La Familia, you know, like the the, 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 the the putting the family first and these large extended families as being a virtue, as a good thing. But actually, you know, when it when it goes too far it undermines states. It is actually quite a bad thing. And it's not surprising that, you know, many of the societies that are so family focused, Latin American countries you know, uh, Portugal, Spain, um, Italy, uh, you know, India, you know, various parts of East Asia are also some of the places with the highest levels of nepotism and, you know, high levels of corruption. Um, it's, it's exactly what you'd predict. So, you know, we, we can understand all of these different levers, but there's so much work to be done in, in you know, putting the, the, the rubber to the road, so to speak, like connecting up these these models which make very nice predictions and you know this experimental work which backs up the models and connecting it back to well how does that get instantiated in the real world and honestly like in terms of the the political um how do you how do you get from a to b that's that's what i'm really interested in right it's fine to understand the phenomenon and it's important to understand the phenomenon so it's the very first important first step um 
but then you need to figure out how do you translate that to to the real world you know so actually i just came back yesterday from the the global solutions summit um and 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 it was it was really wonderful to 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 hear uh, snower the um president of the keel institute who runs this so the the global solutions summit is um uh, is a bunch of um it brings together people from all over the world to um to support the G20 and to advise the G20, which is going to take place in Japan later. And, you know, Snower's opening talk was basically, here's how cultural group selection and, and, and cultural evolution should be the way that we think about these problems and the way that we think about reorganizing um, things to tackle these higher level phenomenon. You know, given what's going on with climate change, um, it, we require an unprecedented scale of cooperation. And the threat that is looming is, is we may not get there fast enough. I mean, to be quite honest, I think that more attention needs to be paid not just to uh, mitigating climate change, but given what the, you know, if you read the reports and the models, we should be focusing on post uh, how to deal with a post-climate change world. Mm-hmm. And I know that the military and, you know, various people are doing that, but in the, in the public sphere and in the, and the, and the, and the, the, po- the political sphere, we need to be doing more to think about how do we deal with a post-climate change world with where things like mass migration, the Syrian migration crisis was probably, is probably the first example of climate change created conflict where people, you know, through the droughts came into the cities um, and put pressure on these cities, which, you know, perhaps led to this kind of political turmoil and then led to this mass migration, which probably led to things like Brexit, right? Um, that may be the first example of this. When that becomes increasingly common as places that were once livable become more unlivable, Places that become unlivable become more livable. Is this 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 instability in the world? To deal with that, I think uh, it's it's incredibly important to identify exactly what you're talking about. Identify what those levers are in society, and there's not enough time and there's not enough money being put into this, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, particularly about climate change, it's really scary. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so ju- just one last question, and this is about a paper that you published back in 2017 uh, called Corrupting Cooperation and How Anti-Corruption Strategies May Backfire. Yeah. And I'm just going to quote you here. That sure. At a certain point, you say, these results suggest that a more nuanced approach to corruption is needed and right. that proposed panaceas such as transparency may actually be harmful in some contexts. So cu- could you tell us about those results that you got and perhaps that uh, undermine certain ideas that people had about what they deemed sure to be certain uh, self-evident approaches or, right. or that they consider them to be so and that perhaps do not work quite as well as people okay. expect. Yeah, no, that's great. So, I mean, the first thing I want to say is like we should be very cautious about, you know, overgeneralizing from, right. from an experiment uh, and the theory that underlies that experiment. So I think these give you very powerful lenses to view the world, uh, but you know, there's more work to connect it to, to the world. Um, but specifically about that, you know, remember I said, when you are so ingrained in, in your world, if you've grown up in one place, uh, it's so hard to imagine. You don't have the software running on your hardware, that giant hardware of yours. You don't have the software to think the way that somebody else thinks. And so it seems like if transparency, if everything were transparent, then of course people would realize, look, their leaders are so corrupt and they would rise up, you know, and then, no. Because they know that their leaders are corrupt. 
Like, that's not the issue. Transparency works only if there is a norm where you shouldn't be doing this. And that, and, and I mean, not just a, a prescriptive norm or a proscriptive norm, but a descriptive norm, right? Where uh, people do, should, people are not doing that. They wouldn't be doing that. But those norms are themselves adapted to the local conditions. So in some conditions, taking the bribe is the best way because there is no legitimate way to make money in the economy. The economy isn't, you know, isn't growing or isn't efficient enough to do that, right? Uh, you cannot rely on the state, so you have to rely on your friends and family. And so you have to trade favors because these are the people who, who allow you to survive, not the state. And so in that particular experiment, we show that when the state is very weak and economic conditions are quite poor, then things like um, transparency can backfire because they just make the bribery more efficient. They reveal the price of the bribe. The question is, should I take this bribe or not? The question is, how much do I pay? So it makes it more efficient and actually reduces uh, um, uh, reduces um, um, uh, contributions even further. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in many of these societies, it's not that the, the president is giving favors to his brother. If you step one step lower, you see that the visa officer is giving favors to his cousin. You step a little bit further and you see that the, the you know, the, the guy managing a, a business is giving favors to his uh, friends. You step further, you see the local shop. You, it, it is the, the kind of behavior you see is present throughout society. And whether people admit it or not, if they were in that position, they would do exactly the same thing because they're already doing it at a lower level. So the corruption is, is something, you know, we call it corruption, but it's, it's built into the, to the, you know, it's at the fabric of society. It's like what I said about, you know, like La Familia, you know, like where do you, where you're supposed to favor your family. You're supposed to be there for your family, but where do you draw the line? Do you help your, your do you help your family get a job? Okay, well, what if you're the manager of a large corporation? What if it's a medium-sized corporation? What if it's a small corporation? What if you're the president of a country, a prime minister? What if you're just a minister? Do you still st when do you stop helping your family if that is the prevalent norm? You see what I mean? And so, so this idea that transparency would just resolve it, I think, is crazy. All it does is it makes whatever the correct behavior is more efficient. It solves the information problem, you know, the full information problem. It gives you a full information, but what actually plays out is not necessarily what you want to play out. So the economic conditions have to be such, the, you know, these other conditions have to be such for that to work. The broader point is that you know, we have all of these lessons about this anti-corruption uh, strategy worked in this one place, but it didn't work in this other place, and it worked here and it didn't work there. And so it's kind of a mess of a literature, and, and what, what, what I'd like to be able to do is to use this kind of framework, which is you know, grounded in our biology and our evolution, that says something about how these norms evolve over time and are adapted to the local environment to make sense of, of what things work when. Because right now, it's, it's largely atheoretical in the sense of the, a large theoretical framework. You get kind of these mini theories um, in specific circumstances. But, you know, it's, uh, it's 24 hours in a day and you only get to work maybe 16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 16 at best. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so Dr. Muthukrishna, just before we go, would you like to tell people what might be some of the best online resources if they want to go there and get in touch with more of your work? Yeah, so I mean, check out my website if you want to see some of the. Uh, there's a media page which shows some of the videos that that I made to to, to do this kind of stuff. Um, I'm working on some course notes actually, so I teach foundations in psychological science, which is kind of 
an attempt to reorganize psychology along these theoretical lines, and, and it really shows some of the gaps that we have in the theory and then the empirics. Um, I'm hoping to release some of those course notes, and I'll probably do it on, on, on a website. Follow me on Twitter, so I, I often post these kinds of things. Um, I, I recommend, uh, you know, some of the, um, the, 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 the wonderful books that have been coming out recently. So Joe Henrik has this book, you know, The Secret of Our Success, which I think is, you know, arguably the best among that. And he's got a new book coming out, which I don't know the title of uh, just yet. I don't think it's finalized. Um, but that's really about, you know, what made us weird, um, what led to that weird psychology. Uh, Rob Boyd, who is Joe Henrik's advisor, has a book. Uh, I think it's called A Different Kind of Animal. Um, Kevin Leyland has a wonderful book, uh, Darwin's Unfinished Sym uh, Symphony. David Sloan Wilson has a lovely book, um, This View of Life. So, you know, I think among those books, that, that those provide a wonderful introduction to this. And if you if you don't have time for the books, uh, I also have a chapter on cultural evolution, which I assigned to my undergraduates as kind of a quick introduction. Uh, and you can find that at muth.io. Um, so it's my short link slash CEC for a cultural evolution chapter. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Mutu Krishna, it was really a pleasure again to have you on the show. And it was really a fascinating conversation. So thank you a lot for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. And uh, best of luck. I'm, uh, you're doing great work. Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics from a variety of fields. So just to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you can also do it via PayPal and Subscribestar. Yeah, all of the links will be in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my Patreons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Eninen, and my first producer, Isar Weber. Thank you for all.